Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Chapter 9 The libraries of erstwhile tend to keep to themselves. Aside from political gatherings and the occasional gala, they prefer to remain snugged in their own tiny spheres of influence. But the Actus trials attract interest from all the libraries. If the spoken book found by the victor is powerful enough, Illits might forego paying for services from their local library in favor of seeking out the city's new power. It wasn't unheard of for entire households to move to the victor's locality, leaving their prior library with fewer customers for speakings. That had happened several years ago, when Exgall Library had won the trials and brought back a spoken book capable of growing potato plants that produced seven or eight harvests in a single year. What's more, they thrived in a space small enough that Illits could have their own gardens, rather than going to the markets for food. Exgall was now the most powerful library in Erstwhile next to Xavier, and several libraries had suffered as a result. The Actus trials mattered. At least, they mattered to the readers. To Baz, they were just another threat to his continued breathing. They arrived at the plaza, just inside the city's main gates. The wall around Erstwhile was fifty feet tall, and wide enough for eight men to walk shoulder to shoulder across the ramparts. It was made of dark stone that matched the city's dreary weather. The main gate's portcullis was only halfway up, but there was more than enough room for even mounted men to ride through the opening with height to spare. There was a smaller enclosure beyond that led to another, smaller gate. This design meant that if invaders ever breached the front gate, they'd have to get through another and weather the killing ground in between as they tried to do so. Baz dismounted and stumbled, the insides of his legs already sore. Occasionally, when the weather was particularly bad, Deliritus permitted him to ride when he was out on errands. He knew the basics, but only just, and he'd never done more than an hour's riding around town. He hadn't even considered the hardship that riding for hours, days, weeks, at a time would be and it was only adding to the misery that had been slowly building in him since he'd ridden away from Torchsire Library. He wrapped Liana's cloak tightly about him, wishing they were already out of the city so there'd be no one around, other than Deliritus, to object to his putting the hood up. A conservator dressed in a white habit, marking him as a journeyer restorer who worked at the conservatory, rather than at a particular library, bustled Deliritus, Baz, and Rocks over to stand before a platform upon which the nine representatives of the Table of Enya sat. Duke Octavenal had already assumed his seat amongst them, and Deliritus raised a hand toward him. One side of the Duke's mouth twitched upward, but he otherwise didn't acknowledge Deliritus. It might have been a smile, but more likely it was a restrained scowl at his son's outward show of excitement. Deliritus seemed to arrive at a similar conclusion and slowly lowered his arm, eyes falling with it. The conservator had placed them to the right of two other trios, their fellow competitors in this year's trials. To their immediate left was Hellar Xavier in a crimson tunic that had actual buttons all the way up its front. Baz mused that such a luxury was likely even more expensive than the clothes Duke Octavino favored, Hellar's dark hair was brushed to one side, and his portable lectern was folded and slung over one shoulder. His belt had a large space at the small of his back that held a single spoken book. He had no other weapons visible on his person. Overall, he looked the part of the heir of erstwhile's most powerful library. 
Hellar was flanked by his harbor on one side and speaker on the other. The harbor was arrayed just as Rox was, gray clothing, waxed leather breastplate, and leather mask. Unlike Rox, however, he was only an above-average hill rather than a towering mountain. All lean muscle, sinews, and tendons stood out beneath his skin. He had the standard-issue razor, of course, all harbors did, but he also wore a bandolier stuffed full of knives across his chest and an unstrung war bow in the hand that wasn't holding the razor, which seemed fitting as the harbor's name was Arrow. On his back, Arrow wore a book pack, essentially a traveling bookshelf on shoulder straps. It had a transparent back that opened to the side to access the spoken books within. Trunnel, the speaker Hellar had been using during the questioning of the Sidulus, was to Hellar's other side, a bold selection. Influencers were disturbingly powerful in certain situations, what with their ability to put thoughts into others' heads and words into their mouths. But out in the wilds, it seemed to Baz that a destroyer to kill things or a creator to heal would be more practical. Then again, Hellar was universally acknowledged as a reader of incredible talent, so who was Baz to judge? Trunnell gave Baz a small nod. Baz returned the gesture with a grin full of teeth and no warmth. Trunnell rolled his eyes and looked away. Looking beyond Hellar, Marla Kolnar stood with her harbor and speaker. They couldn't have looked any more different than Hellar's group. Marla had the sort of face that perpetually seemed stuck somewhere between a snarl and a sneer, as if she'd spent her whole life giving orders and snapping at others. That was odd, considering she was only a niece to the Duchess of Kolnar, and not even a first child at that. The Duchess actually had a firstborn daughter who was of age to participate in the trials, but you only got one shot at them, so it seemed the Duchess had hedged this year, permitting a lesser member of her library to compete instead, rather than put the library's top candidate up against Hellar. If Marla won, the Duchess would appear brilliant. If she lost, well, Marla could be written off as a minor reader with little promise. Marla was dressed in pants so tight they made Baz uncomfortable just looking at them. Her gray top was fringed in blue, the charging stallion of Kolnar Library stitched in repetition around the garment's hem. It was cut low enough to entice any man, but Baz was no fool and kept his eyes from her chest as if it were a page of a spoken book. She wore a rapier like Deliritus's at one hip and a parrying dagger at the other. Her harbor wasn't much larger than an average-sized reader. Marla's harbor was also a she, another oddity in the male-dominated line of work. Ryle was her name. She had intense brown eyes that had an unsettling blood-red tinge to them, particularly when they looked at you from over her harbor's face mask. She wore a book pack like Hellar's harbor and had not one but two razors, each extended to their full lengths, large blades nearly scraping the ground as her arms hung casually at her sides. You better look out for that one, Rox, Baz muttered. Hmm, truth, Rox rumbled. I know, Ryle, words mean odd things to her. Baz had never heard Rox hesitate like that before, which unsettled him more than it had any right to. Trying to put the harbors out of his mind, he instead considered Marla's speaker, though that did nothing to settle Baz's ill ease. He was a creator, though it seemed too kind a label. His head was shaved and branded, a close-cut goatee clinging to his chin. His eyes were covered by at what first glance appeared to be solar spectacles, but only the wealthy, in other words, readers, wore those. No, those would be blinders. Some readers didn't go so far as Duke Octavenal and remove their speaker's eyes, but many did insist they use their sight as little as possible. Less seeing, less chance they could learn to read. It was said that denying one's body the use of a sense it hadn't lost did strange things to a man, and Baz could see it in Marla's speaker. He swayed in place with a sort of nervy anticipation, as if he'd lash out at the slightest stimulation. He licked his lips incessantly, as if he couldn't keep them moistened, and his hands kept opening and closing into fists. He reminded Baz of a mute, 
ravenous dog, just waiting for the collar to come off. Most people thought of creators as healers and food producers, but Baz knew better. There were some truly awful spells a creator could utter that would kill you just as dead as any fireball conjured by a destroyer. The conservator who'd moved them into place was now on the platform, standing behind a lectern. Arrayed before the platform, behind the trio of competitors, were congregations from each of the nine libraries, and beyond them a crowd of illits who had also gathered to listen to the opening ceremony. My fellow citizens of erstwhile, said the conservator, raising his arms to draw attention. Welcome to the start of the 249th Actus Trials. Applause and a few cheers came from the crowd. As we prepare to send our fine competitors off on this year's trials, it is important for us all to remember how we got here. Society was not always so well-ordered and peaceful as it is now. Before the burning, anyone was permitted to read, regardless of qualification. Theft, murder, war, all were rampant. The land may have been called the United Cities of Oration at the time, but in truth they fought amongst each other as much as they stood together. There was no true order, no hand to guide the citizens of Oration. Baz rolled his eyes. It didn't seem to him that the cities of the Triumvirate were any more united now. They kept to themselves except when trade forced them together. Then came the summit, called by the three great scribes, Leomina Fortune, Helfax Erstwhile, and the Enigma, Prant v. Lextor, God's given flesh to guide us. They'd a vision for oration, a consolidation of power and knowledge with only those worthy to possess it, those with responsibility, with true ability, and with the foresight to see action's consequences. So they proposed a gathering of oration's strongest orators. The conservator was interrupted by a general grumbling from the crowd. Orator. Before the burning, it had been used to describe one who was particularly good at both reading and speaking. Now you were deemed a dreaded cuss if you demonstrated such capacity. The conservator held up his hands, imploring the crowd to silence. Please, it is only a history. No need to take offense. There were a few continued grumbles from the crowd, but they quieted enough for the conservator to continue. So the orators gathered, intending to write three new spoken books in a language that could be understood only by those select few. They gathered at Tome, locking themselves in the room at the peak of the great library's tallest tower. They had nearly completed their work, but then something went terribly wrong. There was an explosion. The top of the great library simply there one moment, gone the next. Much of the rest of it burned in the aftermath, the skies turning red as blood. To this day, none know what happened, save that all three of the great scribes and most of Oration's orators were lost in the blink of an eye. And the destruction didn't end there. Fire rained from the skies throughout erstwhile, destroying buildings and killing thousands. So began the uncertainties, the years following the burning. With the leaders of Oration's cities gone, they became lawless dens of evil. The remains of our once great capital of Tome were looted repeatedly, until its remaining shelves were all but bare, and what portions of it that hadn't been destroyed by the burning were left in ruin. Then a beacon of hope shone upon Oration, a native of our very own city, Actus Deliritus Torchsire. The conservator inclined his head respectively toward Duke Octavinal, who returned the gesture before the conservator continued. Actus Torchsire led the second burning, confiscating or destroying spoken books that had fallen into unfit hands, until the power of the books resided solely in the nine libraries of erstwhile, the seven libraries of fortune, and the three libraries of enigma. 
he established the system of order we still follow today, those with great proclivity for words are our readers, those bound to the words become our speakers, separating power to ensure dependence upon one another rather than division. Baz suppressed a snigger with only partial success, drawing a glare not only from Deliritus but from Hellar Xavier beside them. Baz stared straight ahead, pretending he hadn't done a thing, and the readers eventually turned away from him. But seriously, though? Did they actually believe what this conservator was preaching? Power was not separated. The speakers held none of it. He could just imagine how Tax would react to the conservator's speech. And of course, our illiterates, who eschew the power of the written word altogether to support our society. Oration rests on the foundation you provide. The conservator's words were followed by what Baz thought was a rather half-hearted smattering of applause from the illits who had gathered to watch the ceremony. But, the conservator said after the applause had died away, order came at a price, for with the separation of power that saved oration came the reality that no longer could any of the bound be taught to write, and thus new spoken books could not be created. So with each passing year, the great power of the triumvirate fades. The conservators do what they can to restore the spoken books, but time is only an opponent you delay, not defeat. So we started the Actus Trials. Each year, we send brave young men and women out into the wilds, chancing the perilous path to the ruins of Tome, in search of the few spoken books that remain there. As we know, some of the scribes' old spells still hold over the ruins, and books don't age the same there as they do outside the ruins. This year, we send three competitors to the once great library, Hilar Xavier, Marla Colnar, and Deliritus Torchsire. There was polite applause after Marla's and Deliritus's names, though it was mostly drowned out by those who were still roaring for Hellar after his name was announced first. The glower on Deliritus's face brought a smile to Baz's. These three, the conservator continued, will face grave danger, but they do it for the good of erstwhile. The conservators wish you the scribe's blessing. He made the gesture of the trinity, hands cupped together like a book, then raising three fingers to his lips. Baz wondered if he and the other speakers were included in the scribe's blessing. He doubted it. Now, I present to you a very proud Duke Xavier to go over the rules of this year's competition. Duke Xavier rose from his seat at the center of the nine members of the table and approached the lectern, stopping briefly to shake hands with the conservator who'd been speaking. He had the same dark hair as Hellar and the same pale eyes. Baz found somewhere else to look. The rules are simple, Duke Xavier said in a powerful voice. You depart together and must return within sixty days. You are free to take whatever path to tome you wish. The way through the reach and across the firelands and weeping plains is shorter, but more treacherous. The way through the emerald woods longer but generally safer, though not without challenges. You may work together or go your separate ways. This is a competition, after all, and so long as no reader uses mortal force against another, you may compete as you wish. Baz sourly noted the conspicuous absence of any prohibition against the use of foul play on a reader's speaker. For that matter, there was quite a bit of pain one could inflict upon another without stooping to mortal force. It wasn't uncommon for readers to return from the trials maimed and missing their speaker or harbor, or both. Baz-eyed Hellar and Marla, wishing he was back in the sub-basement with Tax, listening to the retirees' songs. Duke Xavier continued with the rules. Upon arriving at home, you may search wherever you wish in the ruins for spoken books, but by the terms of the Triumvirate Consolidation Treaty, you may only take one with you. Choose wisely, as you will be judged by the table of Enya on the quality and usefulness of the volume you retrieve. 
The winner of the competition will be determined by a vote of the table at the end of the 60 days. Are there any questions? No one stirred. Baz considered raising his hand to ask whether it was too late for him to back out of this madness, but that would just throw him into an entirely different world of pain. One, there was no chance of him escaping. At least with the trials, there was a possibility of him coming out alive. Though, after sneaking another glance at Hellar and Marla, and then looking back to Deliritus, Baz concluded the probability of his still breathing at the end of the next 60 days was even lower than he'd thought. Duke Xavier raised his arms above his head to take in all those assembled. Hearing no questions, by the power vested in me by erstwhile's governing body, I declare the Actus trials officially underway. May you have a swift journey, competitors. We will see you in 60 days. Deliritus eyed Hellar and Marla, who eyed him right back, no one wanting to make the first move. After nearly a minute of that, Baz shook his head and hoisted himself onto his mount. Not wanting to be outdone, Hellar's influencer did the same. Deliritus sighed, and Baz knew the torchsire air was glaring at him, though he didn't turn to look. Moments later, everyone was mounted and riding beneath erstwhile's main gate, each group staying as far from the other two as the gate's width would permit. Baz tried to tell himself the twisting in his stomach was just from the horse's movement over the uneven paving stones, but he suspected that the feeling of dread in his gut would be with him for quite some time. All right, everyone, uh, welcome back to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is February 24th, 2022. As I record this, uh, this is episode number eight of the book club. Uh, like I mentioned in the last episode, I'm recording a couple of episodes here back-to-back uh, because -back, I am taking a, taking a mini vacation to Chicago next week. Uh, so no uh, no real additional personal update than from episode 7. Uh, still plugging away on my uh, personal edits to the third part of the Spoken Books Uprising, Declaimer's Flight. Mm, a little more than halfway getting my handwritten edits entered into the computer. Uh, so that's that. Um, also the cover to Declaimer's Discovery, which is... Uh, part two of the Spoken Books Uprising is uh, complete, and we'll be revealing that officially on March 11th, so uh, keep an eye out for that, and uh, follow me on Twitter or Facebook, or join my mailing list if you want to be one of the first people to see the cover. Uh, other than that, um, I, think that's, I think that's all I've got really for you, so why don't we just launch right into our analysis of Chapter 9, and then stay tuned, because we're going to go over... Uh, the quest answers for episodes one through seven, and announce uh, announce our grand uh, winner, our inaugural uh, D.T. Kane's uh, Epic Fantasy Book Club uh, quest champion. All right, <clears throat> so uh, let's hop into chapter nine, which are the opening ceremonies of the Actus Trials. Um, you know, first we see this; it's kind of like a national holiday. Uh, right, you know, the whole city, the whole city gets together <laughs> for this opening ceremony, everyone from the Illits all the way up to, uh, the table of Enia, which is the, uh, the leaders <clears throat> of erstwhile, though, you know, it kind of, it's like, it's sort of like the holiday, it's sort of like a holiday, uh, like the Hunger Games were a holiday in Pan Am, uh, in those, in those books, not, not necessarily a celebration, uh, for everyone, <laughs> everyone, uh, certainly the competitors are going into a dangerous situation. Um, and we also see, you know, libraries rise and fall based on the results of these trials, right? Um, you know, we, we hear this one story really quickly. At the beginning of Chapter 9, one of the other libraries in Erstwhile a few years back found this, um, found this book that basically lets you magically grow uh, potato crops, basically, in, in your house. Um, 
and it sounds like a lot of people actually moved to you know the neighborhood of that library so they could pay that library to read the book for them so they'd have their own crops and that um, really hurt some of the other libraries because <clears throat> you know they're all competing as we can see because you know the illets pay the readers to do readings and speakings for them um, so you know libraries have a lot a lot vested in uh, in the their competitors succeeding in bringing back a new never before seen spoken book from the ruins of tome uh, though, of course, Baz, as always, throws in, well, you know, maybe they're significant for the libraries, but not for me. They're just a, they're just a threat to my continued breathing, uh, the trials are. So, obviously, Baz doesn't have a, have a rosy opinion of the trials, as, uh, as we've already seen. <clears throat> uh, just a real quick note, we see the whole city of Erstwhile is built kind of like a fortress, uh, right? These giant 50-foot walls that, you know, eight men can walk abreast on top of, and it's got this giant portcullis and the killing ground, right? So there's one big gate, but, you know, that leads to another gate further out. So if someone wants to invade, they're really, like, trapped in this tiny uh, courtyard before they can actually get into uh, the city. So uh, just kind of an interesting interesting description for now, but um, that'll become more relevant in, in subsequent books. So just keep that in mind. Um, right, so before we get to uh, the actual start of the opening ceremony where we get some history and the rules of the competition, we get a little more detail about our competitors. Remember, it's uh, Hellar Xavier and Marla Kolnar. They are the other two readers who are going on the trials, and we've met them already at the uh, the questioning of the Sidulus back in chapters 3 and 4. I guess it was mostly chapter 4. <clears throat> um, but we do get to see the, the other two-thirds of the trio they are each bringing with them. Uh, Hellar's influencer, or Hellar's harbor, uh, pretty similar to Rock's, right? Though he is only a uh, above-average hill, right? Rather than a towering mountain, <laughs> says Bass, so... You know, all these all these harbors are big, nasty, de- nasty guys, but Rox is uh, particularly large. So, uh, Hellar's harbor is not as big as Rox. You know, he's got the standard issue razor and also a bandolier, which is like the uh, uh, the belt, but that it goes across diagonally across to your chest. So, a bandolier full of knives. Um, and inc- incidentally, I. Uh, I think I first came across uh, the <laughs> the term bandolier in um, oh the what's the series called? Well, the the Abhorson series. That's not what the series is actually called. But um, those are those are uh, um, the old the old something. Sorry, it, it's it's escaping me. But uh, uh, the Abhorson series by Garth Nix, uh, Sabriel is the the first one great stories um kind of the the concept there is <clears throat> the main character is kind of like a reverse necromancer so they uh they send undead things back to death instead of raising uh <laughs> raising raising the dead to be minions for them so and they use uh they have a bunch of bells bells are their weapons and each of the bells does something different to uh, undead monsters, um, and they carry them in a bandolier. So, a <clears throat> uh, uh, sidetrack there, but a little bit of inspiration there. But we've got this harbor, you know. So he's got a bunch of knives uh, and a bow. So he is uh, decked out in weaponry, and he's also carrying a book pack. Um, so like a backpack, right? But meant just for carrying books. Bess calls it a traveling bookshelf on shoulder straps, basically. So. Kind of picture a big, maybe like a camping uh, backpack, um, but it's really just like a, a bookshelf with a clear, <clears throat> like a clear opening on the back, so you can see all of the books in it. Um, and you'll see all the readers have one of these because they gotta carry their books around in something. Um, and then we also see Hellar's speaker, or the yeah, the speaker that Hellar is bringing with him, and it is Trunnel. This is the same influencer we saw earlier when Xavier 
when Hilar Xavier was uh, reading during the questioning of the city, I was trying to get him to uh, tell where he learned to read. Um, and Baz notes this is an interesting choice, right? You know, because most either choose, uh, you know, a healer, which uh, creators are healers. They can they can heal heal wounds or or diseases, or a destroyer who can you know fling about offensive spells. You know, those are the two more uh, likely choices to bring on the trials. Um, so, uh, let's be honest here. Like, I wouldn't be pointing this out if, uh, there weren't going to be some, uh, interesting consequences to Hilar choosing to bring an influencer with him down the road. So, you know, what do we think Hilar has planned with a speaker who's kind of capable of, of mind control? So it's going to be, it'll be interesting for all of you to see, uh, how that plays out here. But obviously we are laying the groundwork for some, some future, uh, some future issues for, for our heroes here. Uh, then we turn to uh, Marla. Marla Colnar, remember, she is the uh, girl, woman, young woman, I guess, who uh, was really enjoying watching the cityless <coughs> get torture. Remember, she was kind of like petting the pommel of her knife <laughs> at one point. Uh, so she is not, not a girl you want to mess with here. <coughs> and uh, we learned she probably has a bit of a chip on her shoulder too, right? As uh, Baz points out to us, that the, the Duchess of Colmar, who again is the the Duchess, it's a Duke or a Duchess. They that's who is the leader of all of the libraries. So the most powerful person in her library, mm, excuse me, uh, the most powerful person in Marla's library actually has a daughter, who is also old enough to compete in the trials. But um, she's been held back <clears throat> this year, so she doesn't have to go up against Hellar, who is kind of considered like the overwhelming favorite here. Um, it seems so. Marla's kind of like the uh, the sacrificial lamb here, unless she wins, in which case you know Colmar will look great by beating Xavier with a lesser candidate. Um, but you know we definitely <laughs> definitely remember how unsettling she was back in that scene with the Sidulus. So the fact that she has kind of extra motivation here to uh, to defeat the other two competitors that certainly doesn't bode well either. You know we're laying laying some more groundwork here. Um, Marla's Harbor is a woman, which Baz notes is, is odd, uh, just cause, you know, harbors are usually big, big burly men. Uh, and she has two razors, right? Not just one, but two of them. She's got both of them extended to their full lengths, kind of just, uh, hanging at her side. And she's, you know, so she is kind of given off a similar aspect of terror as her master here, right? Uh, someone else you really don't want to mess with. And especially we see Rox's reaction, right? You know, Baz... Batters, Baz mutters to him, to Rox, oh, you better look out for that one. And Rox is like, hmm, truth. You know, he says he he, he knows Ryle, right? And w words mean odd things to her. So it even seems, and Rox hesitates there, right? Words mean odd things to her. Um, so Baz is kind of freaked out a little by the <laughs> the hesitance in Rox's voice. If, if Rox, the big, big giant harbor, uh, is kind of uh, concerned about... Uh, Ryle, which is Marla's Harbor. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> you know, definitely definitely grounds to be uh, scared there. Um, and then we see Marla's speaker, who is a creator. And let me just say, it's, it wasn't really an accident that I uh, <laughs> chose one of each types of uh, speakers to bring here. I wanted to make sure the readers got good exposure to uh, each each type. So Marla's got a creator, um, and he seems he's he's kind of mad, right? He wears blinders, like a you know, kind of like the things that a horse wears. Um, you know, I guess they kind of look like sunglasses, but you can't actually see through them. So this is another tactic the readers use to make sure their speakers don't learn how to read. It's like, well, we're gonna keep your eyes covered, you know, whenever possible, so you can't you can't be looking at stuff. Um, you know, and uh, but Baz questions whether that's really any better than uh, <laughs> than just ripping ripping his eyes out. Um, I think Baz's quote here is, "It was said that denying one's body the use of a sense it hadn't lost did strange things to a man." Now, I'll be honest; I haven't really uh, researched <laughs> this issue too much, but I can certainly see how it might drive someone a little bit crazy if you know you can see. Like you physically are capable of it, but you're never allowed to to do to use your eyes. 
Um, and, uh, you know, regardless of how much truth <laughs> that actually holds out here in the real world, it uh, definitely applies to Marla's creator. You know, just, I'm going to read this whole description of him just because I think it, you know, really gives you the, the picture of how, uh, you know, how startling this guy is. <clears throat> he swayed in place with a sort of nervy anticipation, as if he'd lash out at the slightest stimulation. He, geez, that rhymes. That's not intentional. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, he licked his lips incessantly, as if he couldn't keep them moistened, and his hands kept opening and closing into fists. <clears throat> he reminded Baz of a mute, ravenous dog, just waiting for the collar to come off. Most people thought of creators as healers and food producers, but Baz knew better. There were some truly awful spells a creator could utter that would kill you just as dead as any fireball conjured by a destroyer. Uh, so again, you know, obviously some description for description's sake here. I'm just, you know, I want you to all have a good picture of, you know, all of these other individuals who are going to be going off on the Actus Trials with our trio of main characters here, Baz, Deliritus, and Rox. But also... Obviously, I have uh, I have thought through uh, these selections, or I did think them through when I was writing this. So um, we're gonna we're gonna see all of these folks come into play here very soon as we head out on the trials. Um, <clears throat> but first, we get some history of oration, and we really start tying some of them, some more things together. Some of the some of the things we've tried to have kind of been putting together from the prologue by implication are really kind of just explicitly confirmed here. Um, so the very first thing we hear, this conservator kind of gets up on the stage and starts giving a spiel <clears throat> about the the history of oration. This is the 249th Actus Trial, so they have been going on for quite some time. Um, so we know the burning happened like three centuries ago, and then it was like two decades or so before that second burning. So really, not too long after the second burning, <clears throat> uh, you know, they've been doing these Actus trials, you know, every year. So what is about, you know, 30 years or so after the second burning, they must have started. <clears throat> um, right. So... Um, and remember, so before the burning... Anyone could read, um, and allegedly theft, murder, and war were rampant, right? That's what the uh, that's what the conservator says. And then, you know, very quickly here we see him, you know, building up and uh, giving giving the argument for why all, uh, you know, why society has been shaped into the current, uh, sh uh, you know, tier structure that it's in. Um, so. We see the the three scribes called the summit, right? And uh, he calls them gods, uh, God's given flesh to guide us. Which uh, I think we we kind of saw that implied earlier that <clears throat> at least some people, definitely the conservators, treat these three scribes uh, like like gods, and probably with some some good reason at least. They're the people who pretty much invented spoken books, so obviously they were very powerful individuals and this conservator tells us their vision was to consolidate power and knowledge with only those worthy to possess it right you know ones with uh responsibility responsibility true ability and foresight um and they called a gathering of orations strongest orators which uh remember the, the crowd gets a little upset with that term because i guess that's what uh i guess i know because <laughs> i wrote it right um, <clears throat> that was what cusses were called before the burning. So if you were really good at reading and speaking, you were an orator. So obviously we had a, uh, a nice grand sounding title back then. And you know, now it's moved to, to cuss because, uh, we do, we do not, we being the readers, the readers do not like people who know how to read and speak. So they get a, they get a nasty name for them now. <clears throat> And so apparently it was uh, the three scribes' <clears throat> intent by calling this summit to write new books in a language that could only be understood by a select few. So they were trying to, at least according to this conservator, trying to uh, shrink the universe of people who would be able to uh, read books. So kind of, 
kind of the direction society's already moved in, except here they were just trying to make the language so complicated that most people wouldn't be able to understand it instead of just preventing all of the bound from learning to read. Um, so they locked themselves in the peak of the Great Library's tallest tower. Uh, and remember, where did we see the Great Library's tower before, right? That was back in the prologue. And remember, the you know the very first sentence of the prologue is, you know, a a spell had blown, uh, you know, the top of the the library's tower off. In fact, I got my book right here. What what does it actually say? Yes, the roof of the great library's tower was gone. This is the first sentence of the prologue. The roof of the great library's tower was gone, destroyed by a spell that had surely sowed centuries of turmoil across all of oration. Uh, and then what does the conservator tell us here? You know, something went terribly wrong with the summit. You know, they were almost done writing the books. And then there was an explosion, blowing the tower's top off and much of the rest of the library as well. So uh, there you go. Uh, kind of as you know, as much confirmation as you need, I think, that the prologue was uh, you know, showing us the burning here. And uh, you know, we learned that the skies turned red and you know, all the great scribes, along with many orators, were lost. And fire rained down from the skies throughout erstwhile. So it was, this was a really kind of a big... Uh, Big catastrophe here. You can see why people are afraid of it even 300 years uh, later. And it kind of threw, <clears throat> threw oration into chaos, right? Because most of the most powerful people in oration were all called to this summit, and they were all killed um, when, this, uh, when this disaster occurred. So uh, this time called the Uncertainties followed, because um, much of oration's leadership, again, they died in in the burning, and this was when, uh, you know, Tome was looted and further ruined uh, beyond just the destruction they occur that occurred initially at the burning. The shelves were picked all but bare, um, <coughs> the conservator tells us. And then a man named Actus Deliritus Torchshire, so we kind of see where Deliritus gets his name, right? He was, uh, he's named after this, uh, this very famous person from, from their library, he led the second burning to restore order. Remember, we heard about this already a little, uh, a few chapters ago. He confiscated books until their power resided solely in, and this is interesting, so we learn how many libraries there are um, in each of the three cities. And remember, we've, we, I, we've seen the triumvirate referenced a few times, and that's because there's three main cities uh, in the land of oration. We have erstwhile, which is <coughs> where we currently are, and there are nine libraries there and then there's the city of fortune which is out on the ocean vast to the west of erstwhile and that has seven libraries and then enigma which is kind of up in the mountains remember that's where rox is from he's from enigma they're the ones who like to twist and get creative with the interpretation of words there are three libraries in enigma so uh so there you go, and, you know, this second burning confiscated or destroyed books, that's what Deliritus, or Actus Deliritus Torchire did, and consolidated the power until no one but the libraries had any books. And he also established this separation of powers, right, between the readers, the speakers, and the illits. Um, and the, the conservator giving the speech here says, this was done to ensure dependence on one another, rather than division. <laughs> you know, Baz suppressed a snigger. You know, they actually believe that? You know, he's, he can't believe what this guy is saying. Uh, you, know, you know, power hasn't been, you know, divvied out between multiple groups. You know, that's all in the hands of the readers. The speakers don't have any. <laughs> so, you know, he's a little uh, in, incensed uh, at that. But that's the, uh, that's the story the upper tiers of society are telling themselves to justify... <clears throat> the uh the society that they have built here um right and then again we already kind of uh ferreted this out earlier but this conservator also clarifies the trials were started because new books can't be made and you have to go find more though uh, interesting we learn that some of the scribes old spells still hold sway and tome which means books don't age the same way there so you know just even more uh you know more justification for why these trials have been going on for so long. You know, not only are there 
books hidden there that, you know, maybe hold powers that none of the current books the libraries own possess, but um, they don't age as quickly. So it's, you know, the books there are going to be newer than anything else any of the libraries have because, you know, these books, they can be restored, right? But the conservator is like, well, you know, time isn't a uh, opponent you can beat, right? You know, you can hold it back, but you can't beat it. So even with the restorers, eventually these books are just going to fall apart. So finding a book that, you know, <clears throat> is in, you know, like new condition is a, is a big deal. So, uh, and then, uh, you know, so the conservator ends his part of the speech. He gives everyone uh, the scribe's blessing with the gesture of the trinity. You know, the hands cupped together uh, like a book and then raising three fingers to his lips. So kind of like the uh, <clears throat> oration's version of the sign of the cross. Um, I guess there. Um, and then at the end of the chapter, we get an overview of the rules of the competition. <coughs> uh, Duke Xavier gets up to give them. So, uh, Hellar Xavier's father. Uh, so you got 60 days. So you got to travel out there and back, <coughs> which seems like plenty of time, right? As noted in the last chapter, it takes about two weeks to travel out there and two weeks to travel back. So that gives you pretty much a whole month to search tome and obviously um well maybe not obviously but you know that that's two weeks of just travel not accounting for any uh uh trials or tribulations you may encounter along the way but still 60 days that seems reasonable uh and there are two main paths to tome one is a shorter one uh but more dangerous um that one is through the reach and across the firelands and weeping plains um, that one is shorter but more treacherous. Um, and then there's one that's longer <clears throat> but also uh, safer, and that is the one through the Emerald Woods. Uh, I will throw um, the map up on the screen uh, on YouTube so you can kind of see what I'm talking about there. Uh, you can also always head over to dtkane.com and uh, click on the Resources tab to get a... Uh, nice high-resolution uh, photo of the map of oration as well. So you can envision that a little bit better. But, uh, you know, we will be introduced to each of those locations, the Reach, the Firelands, the Weeping Plains, the Emerald Woods, um, as we move further into the book here. <clears throat> um, you know, the competitors are permitted to work together or separate. You know, there's no real rules about what you got to do other than you can't use mortal force against another reader though again baz emphasizes uh well he emphasizes there's no rules against using mortal force on speakers right or harbors for that matter and also the fact that you know you can inflict quite a bit of pain without using quote mortal force um so uh right so the mortal force rule it's very uh, you know, it's very, really like a, a bare minimum here, <laughs> right? Baz knows, well, you know, readers come back maimed, you know, maybe it wasn't, mortal force wasn't used, but, you know, you can cut someone's arm off without using mortal force, I guess, so <clears throat> you can still, uh, you know, it's almost no holds barred, right? You can only take one book from Tome. We learned that there is a, uh, the Triumvirate Consolidation Treaty, so I guess the cities have agreed that you can't just go and loot the library, which which makes sense. Otherwise, how could you have had 249 of these competitions? <clears throat> uh, and then when the competitors return, the winner is declared by the table of Enya, so they judge which book is the best one that is brought back. So, geez, you can go through all this, bring a book back, and still not win. So maybe some more motivation there for competitors to uh, <laughs> definitely hinder the other ones, because obviously, especially here with only three people, I guess if you can prevent the other two from even finding a book, then you win automatically, right? So there's definitely a motivation here to uh, to mess to mess with the other competitors. Uh, all right, so that, <clears throat> that's actually it for the analysis. Um, maybe a little quicker. I think that was a little quicker <clears throat> than some of our other weeks, which is good. Um, yeah, I love chatting with all of you, but I think an hour and a half is probably too long for a lot of episodes, and the occasional hour and a half episode is good, but <clears throat> I'd love to keep these closer 
to an hour. Though if you really love the marathon episodes, uh, let me know. Shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com, and I'll make sure to at least keep including some of those longer form ones. Um, Right, so homework assignments for next week. Uh, We'll be reading Chapter 10. Uh, Our competitors are finally off, and they are traveling through the wilds. Um, Let's see, Deliritus makes a deal with his other competitors. Uh, Is he savvy or stupid? (laughs) What do we think after he makes his deal? Um, Baz also talks with Trunnel and receives a dire warning. Um, What do we think that portends for for what is to come here? And then Baz really puts his foot in his mouth. Um, We've already seen him put his foot in his mouth a few times, but uh, this one is particularly bad. But then he's rescued by an unlikely source. Um, what do you think of that? So there are some things for you to look out for in Chapter 10. Um, but as usual, remember, if you don't do your homework, that's okay, because I will um, be reading for you and answering those questions and many more next week. Um, let's see. We're not going to do a listener question this week because we're going to go over all of the quest answers, which let's do that now. So have got seven questions here our uh, question from episode one was uh, what do you think was my inspiration for the dragon we meet in the prologue uh, so the the book dragon the white one with the writing um, on his side uh, some people did get this uh, he looks a lot like Falcor <laughs> from the never-ending story right um, and yeah there is definitely some inspiration uh, definitely some inspiration there um, I've always, <clears throat> one of the things, uh, when I was just brainstorming ideas, you know, back before I even really got the idea for this series was, you know, what are things people like <laughs> to see in stories? And, you know, people love, people love animals, right? You know, uh, stories where the main character has a, has an animal, uh, you know, familiar or companion go over well. So, uh, I definitely wanted to to work something like that in. Um, <clears throat> I know we haven't seen too much of our book dragon yet, but he is coming. He's going to be in the book later, um, you know. And Falcor is just such a <laughs> just such an iconic, uh, iconic kind of uh, you know mushy mushy kind of stuffed animal character. But at the same time, you know, a uh, you know a really strong uh, really strong force in the never ending story. So. Yeah, he definitely some influence there for my book dragon character in the spoken books. Uh, let's see about how old is Baz in chapters one and two. Uh, again, I didn't come right out and say it, but you can kind of figure it out. So let's see. Let me just flip to chapter one here. Right, so um, in chapter 1, page 9, at the top of the page there, if you're in the physical book, we have this quick little story about why the speaking rooms are separated from the rest of the library, and that's because if a, if a speaking goes wrong, you uh, you want it to be set apart from the rest of the library. Um, you know, we learned that you know the speaking room at Prashat Library was raised by a destruction spell gone awry 10 years ago, and up. Uh, shortly before Baz had been born. So, right. So shortly before Baz had been born. So 10 years ago was a little before Baz had been born. So what does that mean? So Baz is like 8 or 9, right? You know, a little ambiguous. Um, But yeah, so Baz was like 8 or 9, which means he is 18 or 19 or thereabouts. in the main chunk of the book because that happens 10 years later so good job if you got that one um what is the statue of the dragon in the conservatory calling to mind from earlier um and i think this was a pretty easy one but obviously uh that's a book dragon statue in the conservatory and we saw a book dragon in chapter one so there's the the connection there um, and we know at this point that the prologue <clears throat> was 
Um, and I might have just said chapter one, but I meant that the book Dragon was in the prologue. Um, you know, we, the pro- we know the prologue was the burning, and likely that Bront B. Lextor was one of the three scribes, so the book dragons were friends of the scribes, and now the conservators use the book dragon as kind of this good luck symbol or their <laughs> their mascot, if you if you will. So I'm making some more connections there. Um, episode four, uh, I got some good good ones for this. Send me your favorite excerpt from chapter four. I figured I would just share mine here. <clears throat> this is towards the end. Um, right before Baz decides to save uh, Deliritus um, from the from the city, unless he was charging him with a knife. So, visions of his wildest dreams coming true flooded Baz's mind. Deliritus dead, just what the idiot deserved. Finally, payback for what he'd done to tax. No one else in the room was making any move to help Deliritus either. The gathered readers would gladly watch one of their competitors struck down. Baz ought to have felt satisfaction at that, Deliritus falling victim to the same societal mores as had victimized his brother. But instead, Baz found a hollow emptiness in his gut. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I like that for really what it uh, shows about Baz as a character, I think it kind of, that kind of really sums up Baz's character very nicely. <clears throat> you know, he's got all this hate for Deliritus. In fact, we see when he's talking to Yeltax, uh, subsequent to that chapter down in the sub-basement, how, you know, he has to hate Deliritus enough for both of them, he said, he tells us. Um, you know, and, but despite that, he still can't let Deliritus just get uh, killed when he has the power to do something um, about it. So, we see Baz's internal conflict there, but ultimately, um, you know, it seems he is a good guy <laughs> deep down, even despite how much he tells us on the surface that he hates Deliritus. So um, I like that. There's also lots, there's several funny quips from Baz in Chapter 4. Um, I think I, I, I picked out most of those, though, when we did our discussion of Chapter 4 back several episodes ago, so I figured I wouldn't go and repeat those. Um, let's see. What do you think the inciting incident of the novel is? Uh, I had this debate with myself <laughs> a little, uh, back in the episode when, uh, we discussed this quest question, but, uh, I think the, really the two ones are, well, is it Delida getting hit in the throat by the city list and she can't speak anymore? Or, um, you know, when Duke Octavenal announces that Deliritus is going to be taking Baz on the trials. And I, I think it's that latter one. Like I said, I think you can make arguments for both, but, you know, <clears throat> we still don't, you can probably see it coming, but when, Del, when, when Delida gets hit and she can't talk right, um, we still don't really know for certain, or at least Baz does not know that he's going on the trials at that point, right? He hasn't realized that. Um, so the inciting incident is usually what, propels our protagonist into the rest of the story and <clears throat> I think that is um, you know when Duke Octavenel says you know well you're taking your destroyer with you Deliritus that's the only option you've got and you know coming from Duke Octavenel that's pretty final right no one questions <laughs> the Duke of the library so at that point we we and Baz kind of know with almost certainty Baz is going and that's what the rest of the book is going to be about. Um, and incidentally, I don't think it's, you know, a couple of folks maybe made an argument that it's later <clears throat> when, um, you know, Yeltax fails to come up with any <laughs> ideas for Baz to get out of the trials, but I don't think that's, uh, that's quite right. That's more of like the first plot point. So usually you have the, uh, you got the kind of the background. That's usually how the book starts. You see what the ordinary world looks like. And then you have your inciting incident. Um, and then you have the first plot point, which is where uh, the character makes a decision <laughs> in response to the inciting incident that launches them forward. And, you know, that that point is where, you know, Bass finally resolves that he's going um, when Neil Tax says, uh, you know, well, really Tax encourages him to go. And Baz is like, well, I guess I'm going. <laughs> so uh, I would see that more as plot point one. 
uh, we mentioned the Hunger Games earlier. Um, so there, you know, the inciting incident is when Katniss's sister is chosen for the Hunger Games. So that's the inciting incident. And then plot point one is where Katniss decides to volunteer herself as tribute in uh, Prim, right? Is it Prim? Primrose, right? Yeah. Prim's place. <coughs> so there you go. little uh, story structure lesson there. Uh, episode number six, moving right along. Uh, what did I... I left out a connection between Texas Tattoo and something earlier in the book. You know, did uh, did you pick up on this? But uh, where else have we seen uh, spoken words <coughs> uh, written on another living thing? And that was going back again to our book dragon from the prologue and also the statue uh, in the conservatory has writing on it, as does Liana's miniature statue in her workshop. So, uh... That's interesting, right? We still haven't seen what the real significance of the writing on the book dragon is, but um, you got to think it's probably not a coincidence that Baz's brother now has this tattoo of uh, words from one of the languages of the Trinity tattooed on him, and we have this kind of mythic book dragon creature who has something similar. So we'll definitely want to see how that progresses and what the significance of that is as we move forward in both the book and the larger series uh and finally uh favorite fantasy author was our question from the last episode um keep sending me those haven't gotten a ton of answers to that question yet but uh i am interested to uh hear what some of my listeners favorite authors are uh, and like I said, you're not getting any extra experience points for listing D.T. Kane as your favorite author, so <laughs> be honest out there. Um, I gave you a few of mine uh, last week. Someone actually asked me that question, which inspired me to ask it back to all of you. Um, another another good one, I like Stephen R. Donaldson a lot. I don't think I mentioned him uh, when I discussed that a few episodes back. He's most well-known for his Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever series. Um, there's nine, I think it's nine, nine or ten books in that. I've actually only read the first three, but, uh, you know, those are the original ones, and uh, I really like those. Uh, the language in them borders a little on the literary sometimes, so if you if you don't like that kind of very fanciful, <laughs> fanciful prose, it might not be quite for you, but if you like uh, really nice descriptions uh, and prose, but also fantasy uh might be right up um your alley i should just give a a trigger warning here there is a rape scene kind of early on in the first book which is called lord fowl's bane um so uh just that warning so if that really turns you off you you may not want to (laughs) get into that series but uh but if you can get past that um it, it really is excellent writing and a great story thomas covenant is Arguably, uh, you know, one of the first uh, modern anti-heroes in fantasy, you know, dark fantasy and, you know, grim dark. That's very popular, very popular now, but not really so much back in the 70s when uh, Donaldson started writing those books. Um, so definitely, definitely recommend them with that one uh, caveat. And actually, let me uh, go up to my bookshelf here. This is actually, let me see, there we go. This is a first edition, first printing of Lord Powell's Bane. Um, Kind of the, one of the prides in my little book collection here. But uh, I like the series enough to have acquired one of these. So there, uh, there you go. It's in, it's in really good shape for a book that's uh, 177, I think, right? 1977, yes. So, geez, we're going on 50 years. That's startling. (laughs) Uh, So there you go. Uh, Those are the quests. And uh, our winner, first ever D.D. Kane's Fantasy Book Club winner, was uh, Diane from New York. So good job, Diane. Maybe I'll put in some uh, uh, overdub, dub over with uh, applause. Uh, there, but Diane will be receiving 
a signed copy of The Actus Trials by yours truly. So, Diane, I'll, I'll be in touch. Thanks for participating. And uh, we'll start up a new series of quests next week. Uh, all right. So that's that. And uh, we just got a quote here to close it up. Um, and I figured, why not? I just mentioned Mr. Stephen R. Donaldson. Uh, so I figured I'd grab a quote from him. This is actually from The One Tree, which is actually a book uh, of his I have not read yet, but will be at some point. But uh, the quote is, Freedom doesn't mean you get to choose what happens to you, but you do get to choose how you react to it. Um, <clears throat> I like that. I think that's probably good advice for Baz here. He, he, Baz does have a bit of a woe-is-me attitude at times, and I think he needs to realize, you know, you can't always uh, control what happens to you, but you can choose how you react to it. And I think that's good life advice in general. Um, I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy, and this this is definitely a very Stoic um, attitude. You know, you gotta, uh, you gotta, uh, you know, accept what you can't control, and, uh, you know, know what what you can, and usually the only thing, often the only thing you can control is how you, how you react to the events that happen to you. Remember, you always have control over how you react, and uh, um, that can be kind of freeing if you really do uh, embrace that. Um, that kind of goes along with, uh, you know, kind of a related philosophy to this, that, uh, you know, no one except yourself can really upset you, right? Um, or has the power to upset you, <clears throat> you know, you get upset, uh, you know, not because of what something said, but because of how you choose to react, uh, to it. And, uh, I have found that is an incredibly difficult <laughs> idea to live by, but, uh, even if you can implement that a little in your life, uh, I think it, uh, it, it goes a long way to, uh, helping, uh, keep your keel a little more even, especially when you're facing, uh, adversity. So, um, there you go. Thanks for letting me, uh, talk a little philosophy there to you at the end. But, uh, I like this quote here too. Freedom doesn't mean you get to choose what happens to you, but you do get to choose how you react to it. That's Stephen R. Donaldson from his novel, The One Tree. Uh, all right. That's all folks. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this has been D.T. Kane's epic fantasy book club. Baz had never heard rocks hesitate like that before, which unsettled him any more, any more than it had a right to. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's epic fantasy book club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. DT Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for DT Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find DT Kane on Facebook at DT Kane Author or Twitter at DT Kane Author. Or send DT Kane an email at DT Kane at DT Kane.com. See you next week.